Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. March is, of course, Women's History Month. And so this week on the show, we wanted to focus on some women who might have been misunderstood or maybe overlooked historically. Uh, first up, we're going to be talking about the character Lolita, who was not an actual person, obviously, but has had a huge impact on our culture. Jamie Loftus has an amazing podcast, which looks at the character from a feminist perspective. Uh, then speaking of feminism, we're going to talk to the brilliant Mickey Kendall about her book, Hood Feminism, which proposes a more inclusive, intersectional version of the women's movement. Then we have got a song from Pink Martini that we recorded but have never played on the show, but this was just the perfect week for it, so you're going to hear that. So that's the plan. Don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How you doing? Boy, I am doing great this week. The... Daylight saving effect, as in springing forward, has Ugh. just changed my life here in the Pacific Northwest. It's my favorite day of the year. Uh, I know people complain that you lose an hour, but like, oh. So worth it. Yes. I wrote on Twitter this week, I think we should just keep springing forward every Sunday until <laughs> every day is 48 hours of continuous sunlight. That sounds great. Let's talk to Congress about that. <laughs> hey, you ready to do our radio show? Let's do it. All right. Molly, are we recording? We are recording. Woo. Sweet. All right. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire house party. This week, comedian and Lolita podcaster Jamie Loftus and writer Mickey Kendall with music from Peak Martini. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Oh, thank you very much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in out there in the listener land. We have a great Livewire house party episode this week. Uh, we are going to be celebrating women's history on the show. Ooh. And in fact, we have a question for the Livewire listeners. Tell us about an amazing woman from history... We're going to be getting the listener responses to that question a little bit later on in the show. Uh, so stick around for that. First, though, it is time for the best news we heard all week. 
how we like to kick the show off to remind people that, you know, there are still good things that happen in the world all the time. That's a good thing to remember. Elena, what is the best news that you heard this week? Oh, man. The minute I saw this on Twitter, I literally emailed the entire Livewire team and I was (laughs) like, Dibs, this is my best news I've heard all week because American musical treasure Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist, one of the greatest cellists of all time, he got his second COVID vaccination shot near his home in the Berkshires. And you know how, I, I well, when you get it, you have to wait about 15 minutes or 30 minutes, depending mm-hmm. on your your situation. Um, it's usually in some kind of big municipal space, like a gym or something. He pulled out his cello and played a serenade for 15 minutes for everyone else that was waiting. Uh, and that was the way that he sort of expressed himself after getting that second COVID shot. There's video of it. He plays the Ave Maria. and It's amazing. He Yeah, he played some Bach too. When I first saw the headline on this, I was like, Really, Yo-Yo Ma, you're just traveling with a cello? And you know it's not his good one. You know, like his vaccination cello is not the Stradivarius. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, that's an interesting move. You brought the cello there to to entertain the folks. But then I watched the video and I totally started crying. Yeah. I mean, it's an emotional experience getting vaccinated. You're you're with a whole bunch of different members of the community and it feels Mm -hmm. you're nervous and... Um, you're relieved. And I can imagine hearing a cello, which I think is like one of the most emotional instruments, just really being super evocative. Uh, I, I love that story too. I might love this story even slightly more. This is the best news that I heard this week, which is ironically sent to me by our technical director, Molly Pettit, Uh-oh. who spends most of her time trying to avoid this kind of stuff happening on recordings, Elena. Uh-oh. But somebody has invented something called the Zoom Escaper. And this is basically like a web widget that allows you to start playing annoying sounds over your Zoom call when you want to get off the call, but you don't know how to do it. It was invented by someone named Sam Levine, who is uh, an artist, I guess. And the idea is that you just be sitting there thinking, how am I getting out of this meeting? And then maybe you kick in the echo function, echo function so that everything, so that everything you're, saying you're saying I'm sorry, Luke, I can't co-workers. hear you. What? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm having I'm some having kind of an echo. Are you hearing that? Yeah, you know, why don't you just off? drop out of the call, Luke? That's yeah, okay, you know we'll what? catch I'm you up later. Can you just finish this up with an email? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Exactly, see? The perfect crime. Some of them are so annoying that your colleagues will end the meeting. I've been practicing so freezing. Like in the mirror right? when I'm brushing my teeth, I'll just be like, er, and I'll just try to hold still. But this is much better. Yeah. Let's say that we were having a Zoom, Elena, and all of a sudden I just had like a very unhappy baby in the background. Was... Oh. Would would this be enough for me to say, you guys, I got to go. I'm so sorry. I'm dealing with the situation. It depends on the time of the day, but yeah. <laughs> You'd also be like, when did you have a baby? Yeah. That I mean, was- <laughs> you do have to set some of these up, I think. <laughs> if I'm using the young baby one, it's going to raise a lot of questions with the Livewire crew. But anyway. Is there one called Bear Attack? Because that would be a really good one. No, but we can email the guy and have him add it to the list. Uh, the, the sounds include man weeping, <laughs> dogs, construction, oh. wind, upset baby, bad connection, and then urination. What? For some reason. Which, yeah, I don't know. I don't. No one wants that. No. No, it's not a good idea. <laughs> don't even. The idea, though, that we're beginning to have tools to manage uh, uh, how many of these Zoom meetings that we're trapped in all the time. Elena, mm-hmm. for me, that is the best news that I heard this week. Woo-hoo! 
Uh, let's get our first guest on over to this house party. Jamie Loftus is the creator of a really fascinating podcast. It's called The Lolita Podcast, uh, which, as the name would indicate, it's about the book by uh, Vladimir Nabokov. What really makes this series so interesting is the way that it kind of examines the, the young girl at the center of the book, Dolores Hayes, which is Lolita's real name, um, and how this idea and even the like aesthetic of Dolores Hayes has impacted all kinds of things, um, you know, from court cases to, to fashion. And, and Jamie manages to do all of this from a feminist perspective and also really focusing on survivors of, of sexual assault. Speaking of which, uh, we are going to be talking about some of the plot of the book Lolita in this interview, which could be uh, traumatizing for some folks. So just a heads up on that. Okay, so without further ado, let's welcome Jamie Loftus to the Livewire House Party. Hi, happy to be here. Um, when did you first become aware of the book Lolita? Like, how old were you? Uh, I would have I would have been about twelve when mm. I first. Yeah, I would have been the age of the protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you become aware that this book existed? Uh, I learned about it from my favorite children's author. I used to love Lemony Snicket books. I mean, I still do. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, they they were like the center of my universe when I was 12. <laughs> and he had given this interview in a magazine that I I believe it was like for kids because I don't know how else I really would have had it. Uh, but it said like, you know, what is your favorite book of all time? Or like, what would you bring on a desert island? And he said, Lolita, it's the most beautiful book I've ever read. And so I was like, oh, well, I gotta, I gotta read this book. <laughs> oh, no. uh, what was your impression of the book when you were reading it at a kind of somewhat young age? I didn't really understand it. I knew that it was my favorite author's favorite book and I wanted to be like him. And so I was like, I like this book. This is even, and I remember there were multiple times in the book where I was I don't know. Like when I was a kid, especially I read all the time, but I always kind of, if something made me feel like, Ooh, I don't like this. I assumed that I was reading it wrong. Mm. There were definitely moments I remember being like, Oh, I don't, I don't like that. But then I was like, Oh, I probably just don't understand. So I just kind of went off of like what the feedback is on the, you know, on the front of the book, it said it was like the best love story ever. So I was like, okay, I guess that I'll, I'll take that at face value. Uh, for for the people who might be listening, who have been kind of lying, frankly, that they've read Lolita, like if it's come up at a party or whatever, mm-hmm. could you do them a solid, Jamie, and just kind of give us like a one or two minute synopsis of the plot of this book? Ooh, uh, yeah, I've read it too many times at this point. Uh, Lolita is a book about a uh, child sex abuser. He is his name is Humbert Humbert. Uh, he is writing the account uh, from prison where he is waiting on trial for murder, not for being a child sex abuser. And he is essentially recounting his life, but mostly around this one twelve-year-old girl, Dolores Hayes, who he uh, groomed and assaulted for two years. She's being uh, abused and eventually um, is able to escape his clutches and goes on to um, live on her own. But she, because she escapes into the clutches of another uh, another pedophile whose clutches she also has to escape, and then she goes on to um, live on her own for a couple of years. Um, she gets married and pregnant at seventeen, and she dies in childbirth. It's the saddest story ever, but at least. Humbert Humbert also 
dies. <laughs> well, you 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 say in the podcast uh, that there's a real distinction in your mind, and this you're consistent with this throughout the episodes of the difference between Dolores Hayes, which is the character, and then Lolita, which is this kind of construction of Humbert Humbert's mind. Why was that important to you? Uh, it was important to me because it's. I think that that is like at the center of the misunderstanding that um, has been taken and kind of perpetuated in all these different ways of, you know, Lolita is not an actual person. She is like a construct of a child sex abuser. And Dolores Hayes, whose name is, you know, barely really mentioned in the story, is to me, I mean, the the child who is um, going through like the, the worst experience you could possibly imagine. Like one person is real and the other is this constructed character that an abuser has created to convince himself that the abused person is somehow deserving of what's uh, happening to them. You say in the podcast that there's, you know, the, the sort of beginning of the book gets left out right. of a lot of the mm -hmm. conversation about the book or the film adaptations of this book or yeah. even maybe the musicals, which is a just terrible idea, as you point out. <laughs> You know, Lolita Brittle. the musical. More, more on that in a moment. But, but the, the the beginning of the book sets up the idea, as as you've mentioned, that that this is a person who is in prison now for something that isn't the the victimizing of this young woman. But even so, he's in prison and he's set up as a monster by the yeah. person who's kind of writing this account of Humbert Humbert. And it seems like that kind of gets lost, and then people interpreted as a, a a love story or something that seems to put a positive spin on this clearly predatory relationship. Yeah, yeah. There is an intro to the book that's written by an external character. He's a psychologist who sets up the premise really cleanly in this kind of like overly academic way. But you know, says that this person he considers to be a monster. Um, he had assaulted a young girl. This was a common crime. Uh, and that he had since committed a murder. And like, here is his, you know, essentially his attempt to win you over. <laughs> but I mean, the first time that I read it, I I don't even know if I read that section, honestly. I it, Or mm -hmm. if I did, it went right over my head. So if you don't understand how critical it is to read the intro, you can really kind of set yourself up for failure in the reading of the mm -hmm. book. And then it's also just never mentioned in any of the major adaptations. So especially with the adaptations, you just are not given the tools you need to understand what's going on. Uh, we're talking to Jamie Loftus. Uh, she created the Lolita podcast. Uh, and this is the Livewire House Party. we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, I also want to get into uh, the sort of Tumblr world of nymphets and the role that Lana Del Rey may or may not play in <laughs> the kind of more updated thoughts around the sort of Lolita idea. Uh, in just a moment, first, though, we got to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRX. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not 
the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Jamie Loftus, the creator of the Lolita podcast, which uh, does a really deep dive on the book Lolita and the movie adaptations and the musicals and, and people who played Lolita and people who've been victims of abuse uh, as portrayed in, in the book. Um, let's talk about the Tumblr uh, episode a little bit. So there, you know, more recently, I guess, well, if you consider Tumblr to be recently, uh, mm. for my 44 year old brain, that seems like it was probably yesterday, but <laughs> it's kind of old news, but like in more recently, you have this kind of rise of what you describe as being kind of like the Lolita aesthetic. A lot of it is surrounding mm. the 1997, uh, film version of Lolita yeah. and the pop singer Lana Del Rey because of some of her music and her vibe is, is cited a lot in this. First of all, can you just tell us about that world a little bit? Um, yeah, this is, as far as I can tell, this is uh, different versions of this online community have existed since the early 2000s. So kind of just like even before there was Tumblr, these um, nymphette communities would exist and there's an amazing essay about this in this um, in an essay collection that comes out this month called Lolita in the Afterlife. Um, mm. It's by Kate Elizabeth Russell, and she was a part of one of these early 2000s um, groups and kind of takes you through that experience. But um, it starts as kind of a message board for mostly young girls who are fans of the book and had kind of idolized the relationship in a pretty unhealthy way. And it's just sort of a community for girls to discuss 
this book. And so it's like the tone, that remains consistent, but the tone of the conversation changes pretty significantly as the years go on where uh, Lana Del Rey, I feel like, you know, her popularity and music and she very much embodied this aesthetic and referenced the book quite a bit. So I feel like that gave this community a big resurgence Mm. and then it like really came to life on Tumblr. But then there's other areas of, of this community that are like, we just like the clothes. Can you like leave us alone? (laughs) Um, Which is like also like, yeah, what a yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so it is like this combination. And and then there's people who do understand the book. There's a huge community right now, or I guess not huge, but for Tumblr, huge. For like a, you know, sort of half-dead platform, it's huge. <laughs> uh, but there's like, you know, people who in, the, in this community right now who are hyper aware of what the book is actually about and understand and are constantly sort of adding these qualifiers and disclaimers of like, I'm not glorifying this relationship, but I enjoyed the book mm-hmm. and I like the clothes. And it's just like, I don't know, like any online mm-hmm. teen community, they're just trying to like navigate yeah, it yeah. and navigate it in, a, in as safe a community um, as is possible. You know, the Tumblr episode, if I remember right, it starts with you kind of making a bit of a disclaimer. And this actually happens throughout the series where Mm -hmm. I feel you as the host, Jamie, are in this kind of challenging position sometimes where you're trying to describe something, but you're also aware that it may not be everyone's experience and it may be triggering to some people. And it's really hard for you to to talk about things in a way that includes every single possible experience. So a lot of this show for you is you trying to kind of footnote things and give context and give caveats. What's it been like for you to try to produce this thing that people have really strong feelings mm-hmm. around? Um, and mm-hmm. to try to get it right and try to create the most light you can while upsetting the least amount of people. You know, I, I I had a great group of producers and editors that I trusted that I would gut check basically everything with them. It just mm-hmm. was like there was no significant decision that I made that I didn't like check with um, like four different people whose opinions I really trust um, to to move ahead. And then the other thing that was you know, like challenging at times, but I think really ended up servicing the show was to, you know, take in feedback, which mm-hmm. is not the best thing to happen when you have when you have something, you know, really heavy coming out and it's already like, oh, I'm spending all my day in this. Do I really want to spend the night reading messages about it? But it was important for this especially mm-hmm. because it's, you know, the way people receive this book is so singular. And there were a lot of valid points and perspectives that I just truly, like, it hadn't occurred to me. Um, mm-hmm. There was just all these these people that were so generous to share their experiences with me in ways that ended up, you know, escalating the importance of certain episodes or, I don't know, like, the, the community listening to the show in real time was extremely helpful and, like, just having that open line of communication was difficult, but I think like good for the, for the show. I really wish that when I read the book, I read it once by myself in an ill-advised like teenage capacity. And then once like freshman or sophomore year Mm -hmm. in college in like a literature, the 1950s class, I wish I would have had a podcast, you know, not Mm. a book club, not a study guide, because it's such a big issue, this intersection of art and trauma and the way that people have dealt with it for 70 years. I would have been able to feel more confident about like kind of forming my own relationship with the book rather than either, like you said, like condemning myself for not getting something or 
not really having any place to sort of go with actual opinions that I was developing about the book. Why couldn't right. they have invented podcasts earlier? <laughs> it just would've... We had the technology. And and can can we agree? I mean, this this book is open to interpretation, which again is one of the really amazing things about this podcast series, Jamie, is just the way that it opened my eyes to how when we look at something, where we're standing when we look at that mm-hmm. thing or read that thing completely shapes our experience with that thing, which is probably like philosophy 101, but I didn't go to that class because <laughs> I went to a state school and I phoned it in. Uh, but amidst that, can we agree that uh, who is the viper who likes them post diaper is maybe Ooh. the worst line ever in a musical, which is from a musical about Lolita. Why do people, why did people feel that this would work as a stage production? It's... I mean, that's like the the worst, most egregious example. <laughs> I just am like, how, how? I don't know. I, it made me, you know, grateful to to not be around in 1971 because it just. I was like, if that, if you could just get millions of dollars to do whatever that is, that's that's a dark timeline. Um, yeah, that the problem with that song too is that it's very catchy, and so I have mm-hmm. listeners who are like contacting me all the time to be like, "It is a it is a vile lyric that I can't <laughs> stop hearing in my head." Yeah, I was texting with our producers before this interview, and I said, "You can't unhear it because mm. it's really, yeah. <laughs> it's really there." Um, I, one of the things also that I, I like very much about this this Lolita podcast is I don't feel like you, as the creator of it, have a particular outcome that you're looking for from the listening experience? Would that be true? In other words, like, are you kind of open for everyone who listens to this forming their own opinion? Or is there something you're hoping people might take away from this? Um, I mean, I I absolutely want everyone to, you know, especially with a piece of art that is this loaded. My goal is never to tell you how to feel about it. What I hope um, after listening to the show that there's no ambiguity about for people is what the core of this Mm -hmm. story is about. And not just that, but why are there still so many people (laughs) that that seem to, you know, go with this completely false narrative Mm -hmm. or refuse to interact with it when, you know, this issue in particular, I feel like is just not discussed in a healthier, productive way um, at all. And I, and I hope that, you know, this show can at least make it clear that this is a conversation that should be had and that a misinterpretation, no matter how well done the, the work is, and this book is like beautifully done in terms of how it's yeah. written, but I don't think that it's just misunderstood and misrepresented because the writing is right. good. I think it's also like this particular issue. People just don't understand mm-hmm. and don't know how to receive and have a conversation mm-hmm. about it. Mm. Well, it's a really amazing uh, piece of work that that you and your team created. Uh, it's the Lolita podcast. Uh, Jamie Loftus, thanks for coming on the Livewire House mm-hmm. Party. Thanks so much for having me. That is Jamie Loftus right here on the Live Wire House Party. Now, in addition to the Lolita podcast, Jamie does roughly like one million other things. Uh, <laughs> she's an Emmy-winning TV writer. She's a stand-up comedian. Uh, and she also has another podcast series called My Year in Mensa, which I know you're a huge fan of, Elena. Huge fan of My Year in Mensa. Don't miss it. It's much more of like an investigative journalism "Quote unquote" thing. Uh, it's, and right, she's, because she sort of accidentally tests into Mensa, and then kind of uncovers the rock of some of the maybe not great elements of Mensa. Is is that 
more yeah. or less the gist. And the, the central scene, she keeps on going to this Mensa convention, which is not the kind of convention I would have expected if <laughs> from Mensa people. So definitely worth checking out. If you want to keep track of all of the different great projects that Jamie Loftus is doing, you can go to jamieloftus.xyz, which I had no idea was even a way you could end a website. Yeah, wow. That's why Jamie Loftus is in Mensa. And we're just still working with LiveWireRadio.org. Happy to be doing it. Special thanks this episode to Tony Parker of Columbia, South Carolina. Tony is part of the LiveWire member community and is generously supporting us with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it is genuinely how we are able to keep the show going. So, Tony, thank you for supporting LiveWire from all the way over there in South Carolina. This is the Live Wire House Party from PRX. We are celebrating Women's History uh, this week on the show. It's Women's History Month. And so we asked the Live Wire listeners a question. Tell us about an amazing woman from history. Folks sent those responses in, and Elena, you've got them collected up. What are the people saying? Oh, here's a great one from Tim that I agree with wholeheartedly. The queer black mothers of rock and roll. Willie Mae, Big Mama Thornton, Ma Rainey, and Sister Rosetta Tharp. All amazing women, influential in American music, and never recognized enough. Totally true. I know. I was in college when I learned that Elvis was not the original recording artist behind Hound Dog. That's right. It was Big Mama Thornton. I mean, that was like the scales really fell from my eyes. It was Music 162, History of American Pop Music at the (laughs) University of Washington. And man, Big Mama Thornton was a force of nature. That's right. And she kept on performing for years and years and years after Hound Dog, too. She was just really incredible. All right. What's another amazing woman from history that our listeners want to highlight? I love this one from Needleman80. It's a Twitter submission. I like that Needleman... Like one through 79 were taken, but no. this person was like, we're, we're going to stick with it. We're going to get to Needleman 80. We're going to stick with it. <laughs> oh my oh. gosh. There you go. <laughs> What's Needleman 80 say? Needleman 80 said, I would have to go with Marie Curie or Rosa Parks if I'm not allowed to pick my mom. <laughs> I was wondering if, uh, you know, most of the responses were going to be people talking about their mothers because, well... We wouldn't be here without them. I mean, literally, that was something my mom would often remind me of mm-hmm. when I was a child. I think my mother, who's probably listening to this now, is shouting out her own name. Uh, so, <laughs> All right, what's uh, another one that listeners wanted to highlight? Oh, here's a, a woman that I've never heard of before and listen to her story. Okay. Julie Daubigny, known as La Maupin, was a 17th century French opera singer who was an accomplished fencer and wore men's clothes while doing exhibition fencing. She infiltrated a nunnery to rescue her female lover and beat up a lecherous man who insulted her and so much more. That's from Dragon Wing on Twitter. <laughs> How is there not already a movie about that that is winning all of the Oscars and breaking all of the box office records? That Tilda is Swinton cinematic. <laughs> Okay, one more before we move on. Listen to this one. It's from Cindy. An amazing woman that Cindy wants to shout out is Ms. Hedy Lamar, actress and pioneer of frequency hopping technology that forms the basis for today's Wi-Fi, GPS, and Bluetooth communication systems. And if I'm not mistaken, Hedy Lamar was also a spy. <laughs> wow. So basically, Hedy Lamar, along with all the other stuff, also was a pioneer in 
like early Wi-Fi technology? Yeah, I guess we have her to thank when, you know, we're bored on a plane and we want to play Angry Birds. <laughs> All right, let's get our next guest onto the show. Speaking of amazing women, which is what we're talking about this week, our next guest is certainly on that list. She's the author of Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, a graphic history of women's fight for their rights. Uh, she's also the author of a New York Times bestselling book, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women, a Movement Forgot. In it, she calls out the mainstream feminist movement for historically focusing on increasing privilege for a small kind of subset of women rather than supporting the basic needs of, of everyone, uh, particularly women of color. It is a fascinating and challenging read. Let's welcome Mickey Kendall to the Live Wire House Party. Thank you for having me on. Let's start with your grandmother, uh, who who you say in this book would never really self-identify as a feminist, but then you write was one of the most feminist women you ever met. Uh, what was her story? So my grandmother was born in 1924, so she had lived through the Great Depression, Jim Crow, all of these things, and she'd always had to work, right? So when she had kids, her expectation for us was that we would go to school and we would work, and she had daughters, and then she had granddaughters, a couple grandsons. But what she didn't have an expectation of was that we would ever not be able to take care of ourselves. Like that was her ongoing thing, right? You need to be responsible for you. You need to take care of the people in your family. There's an entire, not exactly duty, but an entire responsibility to yourself and to the community speech that goes with this. <laughs> I once told her when I was uh, 16 that I wanted to drop out of high school early and take my GED. And let me tell you, the version of the speech, when you tell someone whose own grandmother wasn't legally allowed to read that you want to skip out on education, that version is a terrifying place. <laughs> I graduated from high school at 16 instead because I liked breathing, right? right? But my grandmother's story was a woman who had always worked, who had seen that if you could not take care of you, the world would not take care of you, but also that there would be people around you in your community who would need a little help, need a little support. So my grandmother might babysit for a neighbor who was a single mom with a weird schedule. She might be the one, you know, sort of nudging someone along to finish their degree. She just didn't identify with mainstream feminism because usually they talked about women like my grandmother as servants. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folks might know you from this hashtag that you started, which was solidarity is for white women. Um, can, can you explain what uh, the thought process was behind that and what you're pushing for with that hashtag? So the thought process behind that was a response to a, we're going to say he calls himself a white male feminist. I wouldn't call him that, but this might be broadcast in a way the FCC would disapprove of. <laughs> um, we're trying to stay on as many radio stations as possible. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a response to him admitting he had been targeting particularly uh, young women of color who were feminist voices on the Internet. He confessed and then white feminists tried to get him to be quiet in the middle of his confession. And one of them said when it was brought to her attention that here's him admitting his, his sins. Why are you trying to stop him? Well, you know, I don't want things to get worse. But you, do, you you just realize he's been targeting someone. He admits it. And she says, well, I know, but I never sided with him, but I had to stand in solidarity with my community and not speak up. And I said, so solidarity is for white women with you. Mm. So then I started talking about all the ways that white feminism fails to show up for black women in particular, but women of color in general and other communities. 
And apparently uh, several million people in 11 countries agreed with me. So there you go. Um, You've said in this book that uh, some people see you as, uh, you know, fiercely feminist and then other people, depending on who you ask, might see you as toxic. Uh, Are you comfortable in that place of of being a, a person who different people have really different perceptions of? Oh, absolutely. There's a saying, um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I like living right there in that spot. If someone is having a hard time, I'm not going to be mean to them. I'm not going to go out of my way to be nasty. But if you want to be a bully, I'm your huckleberry. I'm right here waiting for you. (laughs) Um, How exactly do you define the hood, Mickey Kendall? Um, In my case, because I grew up on the south side of Chicago, the hood is... Candy ladies and the guy that sometimes hangs around the alley and the corner boys serving and corner boys will also take your grandma's groceries upstairs for the record. But the hood could also be on a reservation. It could be the barrio. It could be the holler, right? We see a lot of low income, rural low income communities kind of ascribe to that same aesthetic of, oh, there's nothing of value there. And the thing is, it's not that the hood doesn't have answers. It's not that the people in those places don't have answers, but they don't have is resources. Mm-hmm. So the hood would be, uh, in your definition, somewhere where people are trying to survive and are being deprived of the resources and the attention that they really need and deserve. And that could look like almost anywhere? That could look like any low-income community in America or abroad, because fundamentally, most of us have seen this, this data People in low-income communities reach out to help each other more than people in high-income communities will reach out Mm. to help each other. And I think that sometimes people will ascribe to the hood all of these negative tropes while ignoring the positives. So I want people to think about this low-income community. Why do you think it's so bad? Why do you think it's scary? What services are in your community that are not in that community? It could be buses. It could be streetlights. It could be functional schools. It could be clinics. It could be access to medical care, right? Mm. All Mm. of those things, communities that are bad, usually your communities that don't have things like grocery stores. Mm -hmm. They don't have basic things that are present in higher income communities, but there's no reason for them not to be present there. Poor people buy food too. Mm -hmm. Right. On the subject of which, uh, one of the things that you write about in this book that I hadn't thought of (laughs) from the perspective that you bring up is this typically white kind of proud of themselves folks that uh, enact like a soda ban yes maybe in a in a city because they want to try to keep those poor people off of that sugary drink that's right and 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 you talked about it in a way that I had not occurred to me can you talk about that a little bit I'm gonna point out that people who back soda bans generally will say what's well, it protect kids teeth if you want to protect kids and their health and their weight or their teeth or whatever they bring up weight a lot too wouldn't you be more concerned with the lead in their water Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you be more concerned with the lack of grocery stores in their communities? If you were concerned about health, wouldn't your focus be on making the community healthy and not on taxing people with the lowest incomes for having something they enjoy? And also, for the record, as we saw in Flint, one of the few sources of clean, untainted water was in a soda can because the soda companies were getting lead-free water when the community was not. That's one of the things that I really treasure about this book is like thinking about policy in a way that is listening more broadly. It was, I mean, really helpful for me as somebody who was like, oh, sure, yeah, soda, we should tax, you know. No, like we should think about how this is represented across all communities in the country before we make a decision that's based on one particular community's view of how that functions. 
Well, especially because when we talk about soda and the amount of sugar in soda, we don't do that judging about Starbucks. Right, like a triple Frappuccino. (laughs) There is a Starbucks near our house where I swear to God that line never goes down. There are cars in line picking up whatever triple Frappuccino, unicorn Frappuccino, whatever they are, all day long. (laughs) Uh, Another uh, issue that you bring up in this book, Mickey, um, that you, you say is a feminist issue that might be surprising some people is gun violence. And, and and you tell this story of something that happened to you as a child that is just truly unbelievable. You were nearly shot to the point where the gun actually singed your bangs. You have to understand that I grew up in a neighborhood that is now being gentrified because of the University of Chicago. But a lot of violence that we think of when we're talking about Chicago and gun violence has been in Chicago all of my life. Right. We even can point to Parade Magazine articles about the open air drug market on the west side of Chicago. That is where most of that violence originates from. Hmm. And, you know, Parade Magazine has been gone forever. Right. I was the last reader. I always wanted to see what Marilyn Vos Savant had to say, the world's smartest human. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, But so that's the thing. I'm like a lot of girls. I'm like a lot of girls from low income communities and, and really, if we want to keep it honest, from high-income communities, because if you turn on TikTok lately, you're seeing a lot of kids process how it feels to be afraid to go back to school because now they've had months without having to worry about a school shooting, mm-hmm. right? But I grew up in a community where shooting happened. Could I tell you that it was good or healthy or any of those things? No, but I think that when we're talking about gun violence and we position it as being simply around boys and men, we're doing a real disservice to the women who are present, who are often victims of gun violence and the girls who are often victims of gun violence, but also who, like me, I was just walking out the door. I could have been a statistic. I just so happened not to be. Um, we're talking to Mickey Kendall. Her book is Hood Feminism, Notes on the Women that a Movement Forgot. By the way, this is Livewire Radio if you're just tuning in. Um, I'm cautious about asking this next question, Mickey, because I know that there's a lot of stuff around kind of emotional labor and particularly white people asking people of color to explain to them how to be better white people. But in in reading your book, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that I know is probably challenging for people, particularly maybe white women who consider themselves feminist and would think of themselves as allies. I guess in the with the danger of asking you to do the emotional labor of explaining to folks how to act, like what would you hope people would take away from this book? Um, and, and what would you like to see people do who have done harm but maybe didn't realize it and now feel a little called out by this book? So a couple things. If you can make amends, make amends. Some people you're not going to be able to get to accept your apology and you're just going to have to hold that. Then try not to do the same thing again. Let's like, let's start there, right? And then from that, look at what you're doing and what policies you're supporting, what politicians you're supporting. Sometimes doing the right thing can be as simple as not backing people who are doing the wrong thing. It can be donating to better campaigns, following the lead of people already doing the work, right? Whether that is donating political campaigns or donating to violence intervention or bail funds or uh, mutual aid societies, right? If you have more than enough and the best you can do is put some money in the hat, put some money in the hat. If you have the ability to volunteer and not make it all about making yourself feel better, cool, do that. But Speaking up for the right thing, even if it's sometimes a little risky, is really the transition from ally to accomplice. Mm -hmm. And in terms of being an accomplice, that's where you show up at the school board meeting and say, you know what? 
our building doesn't need an extension, but that community school that's crumbling around their ears, they could use a new building. They could use funds. That could mean, you know, speaking up and not making cutesy little thumbs down gestures in Congress to vote against minimum wage increases. Mm. And instead, I don't know, supporting people getting paid enough to live on in the middle of a pandemic. That's great. <laughs> like a wild idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just curious, Mickey, your personal philosophy in how you move through the world when you're dealing with a group of people and a lot of different people in that group have different needs that need to be met. And sometimes it would seem that those needs could come into conflict with each other or it could be sort of zero sum. Uh, how do you navigate those worlds? Um, so I, I tend to aim for the lowest common denominator, right? Everybody needs to eat. Everybody needs good housing. Everybody needs a safe space, Right. And you'd be amazed how many people in that conflicting room of needs don't actually have all of their needs met at the most basic levels, right? Mm -hmm. So that person who's really hyped up about, let's say they want their student loan debt forgiven, right? And someone says, well, but what about all these homeless people? Well, the person who's worried about their student loan debt is worried about becoming homeless and the homeless person is worried about being housed, right? So then we have to sit and have this conversation about how we can work together to meet the most basic need in the group. If someone has got something that's really outside the box, right, that's not on that Maslow's hierarchy of basic mm. needs, well, then that's when we have the conversation about what is it that you're pursuing, right, and what is it that you need and what do you think this group needs to provide for you? Because even though I am not an organizer and I am not good at organizing things, I am really good at getting people to stop and ask themselves, is this need the most urgent one in the room? Mm. Does it need to be met right now? That's great. You'd be amazed how many people will realize, oh, wait, I'm not worried about housing. I'm not worried about food. These people are. Mm. It's not that, that all the needs shouldn't be met usually in that room. It's the order in which they should be met. I'm just wondering, this, this book, you know, points out a lot of things that we need to do better on and, and that, you know, we are in a country that's in the middle of a pandemic and that has a lot of reckoning still to do around race and gender. Um, is there something, though, that gives you hope? Oh, I absolutely am hopeful about some of the things we're seeing, right? I'm not going to I'm not going to give politicians a lot of flowers here, but I will say seeing that some of the legislation out of this administration does focus on poor people is a good sign. Seeing how many young people, right? And we're going to go with Generation Z and I know people are going to be like, "Well, they're so mean to millennials, <laughs> but like, you know, for, you'll be all right." <laughs> they're advocating for much a much better world in many places. Yeah. The other things I'm seeing is people start to realize, "Oh, those social safety nets that we thought we didn't need, we need them. We should support them and rebuild them." Does that mean that we are looking at a perfect smooth ride? Absolutely not. I would like to welcome you to American politics. Um, you're probably going to have to hold the politician accountable and maybe arrest a handful before it's over. But I, I do see some good things. I see people starting to engage not just with my work, but with the work of a lot of other people and starting to really think about those basic needs being met. Oddly enough, not that I want the pandemic to have happened or for anyone to have died. I think a lot of people seeing the different responses globally has made them realize how little they're getting for their tax dollars, right? We always hear mm -hmm. about my tax dollars. Well, your tax dollars should have taken care of you during this. Yeah. Well, Mickey Kendall, this is a really fascinating book. And I have to say that it, uh, it was challenging for me at times to read, but it also really made me think about the world differently. So thanks for writing it. And thanks for coming on the Livewire House Party. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. It was great to meet both of you. That was Mickey Kendall right here on the Livewire House Party. Her book, 
is Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. This is the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We have got to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere, because when we return, we will be hearing some music from the one and only Pink Martini. So stay with us. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Live Wire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we are celebrating women's history this week on the show. And our next guests, they themselves are nothing short of legendary. They've been around for more than 25 years. They've performed songs in 25 languages. They've sold over 3 million albums worldwide. Not to brag, Elena, but they are kind of pals of the show. Uh-oh. Which I never miss a chance to remind people of. <laughs> That's why Pink Martini was nice enough to stop by our anniversary show back in 2019, and they played a bunch of songs. I know you remember this. The live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland was just, like, beside themselves. Oh, my gosh. Because Pink Martini was in a very generous mood that show. Uh, One of the songs they played is the one that we're actually about to play for you now. It's the Helen Reddy tune, I Am Woman, (laughs) which seems like the perfect song to play for this week's show. We've never aired it before, but we just couldn't miss the chance this week. So check this out. It's Pink Martini, recorded live on Livewire at Revolution Hall in Portland. Numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor And no one's ever gonna keep me down again
That was Pink Martini, recorded back in 2019 at our anniversary show, doing Helen Reddy's I Am Woman here on this week where we're celebrating women's history. If uh, you'd like to check out their fan club, you can go to pinkmartini.com or check out their Patreon as well. All right, that is just about it for this week. Before we get out of here, though, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be playing a hilarious interview with Paula Poundstone (laughs) from early in the pandemic. This was a crazy interview because her phone must (laughs) have gone off 12 times during the interview. And I believe it was mostly her manager calling, and she reflected upon the fact that if anybody should know that she was booked (laughs) to be on a national radio program at that time, it would be her manager. Anyway, we're going to hear from Paula Poundstone. Also, we're going to talk to comedian Joey Clift about a project that he launched to try to complete this very ambitious musical project that a singer named Sufjan Stevens had started. He wanted to write a CD about every state in America. I think he got like two or three states in. <laughs> so Joey Cliff got the internet to write the other like 47 states. Yes. Uh, so, and then we're also, I guess, going to play some of our music that we wrote mm-hmm. about special places as well. Obviously, like you and I, Elaine, are going to play some songs. So then we're going to hear some actual good music Ooh. from Jimmy Harad. Uh, We met Jimmy when he was playing with Pink Martini at that anniversary show that we were just playing you a song from. We're also going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we going to be asking the Livewire listeners for next week's show? Okay, next week we want everybody to write a slogan for your hometown. I've got one for Portland. Don't ask the Whole Foods Deli to cut you a pound of American cheese. What? (laughs) I just did that. I don't know if I'm allowed back in the 503. Anyway, so if you've got a slogan for your hometown, (laughs) write it up and then submit it uh, via Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the LiveWire House Party. A huge thanks to our guests, Jamie Loftus, Mickey Kendall, and Pink Martini. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donoville is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director, and she mixed this episode. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire is created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank members Rob and Carrie Peacock of Portland, Oregon. 
For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew, thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.